In a little more than a week, the Global Leadership Summit 2017 will begin in this very room. It'll be broadcasting to 600 plus sites all across the United States and Canada. And in the months that follow, an expected 400,000 people in 128 countries will experience the Global Summit. As I consider the potential impact of this global community of leaders, I'm filled with an overwhelming sense of hope for our world. Leadership is influence, and everyone has influence. Whether you're a stay-at-home parent, a construction worker, a leader in business or government, or serving in your local church, you have influence. And that influence really matters. But to increase the impact of your influence, you need to put yourself in environments that will sharpen your mind and inspire you on a regular basis. The Global Summit is simply the best opportunity I know of to do this. This year, we have another fantastic lineup of speakers. You'll learn from leaders representing some of the world's most innovative organizations, including Facebook, Google, International Justice Mission, and North Point Community Church. I warmly invite you to join me at the Global Leadership Summit 2017. Together, we will be inspired and equipped to maximize our influence wherever that might be. I'll see you at the summit. Hey, Northridge family. I am so excited to tell you about a, a big event that's coming to downtown Plymouth. On Saturday, August 19th, we're doing Northridge in the Park. We're taking over Kellogg Park for a huge worship event. You know, the majority of people in our community have never been in our building, but, but that's okay because the building's not the church. We are. The people of Plymouth don't have to come into our building to experience Northridge. If we all show up, they experience Northridge right there in the middle of downtown Plymouth. And isn't that how it's supposed to be? I'm really hoping on that Saturday night, we will overwhelm Plymouth. We will overcrowd that park, all for one reason, because we wanna wake the world up to Jesus and we can do it together. I can't think of a better Saturday night because at 516, Harvey Carey's coming for our unforgettable Saturday night service. And then you hop in your cars and at 716, Northridge in the Park begins. And so let's show Plymouth what Northridge is really all about right there in Kellogg Park. Bring your friends, bring your family, bring your lawn chairs, and make sure you come to lift up the name of Jesus, and Plymouth will never be the same.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in the waiting. And God, I would imagine that today uh, at all of our different Northridge locations, those maybe that are watching online, there's some people that are in a season of waiting in their life. And maybe it's not a season that they feel like it's their choice. They feel stuck in something that their soul so deeply longs for. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a career thing. But there's something that they want to happen, but it's not happening. And it's certainly not happening in the time frame that they thought it was going to happen in. And there's probably moments that they feel as if they are all alone. And maybe today, more than answers, maybe more today, more than anything else, what we need to know is that we are not alone, that you're with us, even when we're stuck in the pain of waiting. God, we're grateful that we're in your presence in this moment. We're grateful that you're meeting us here today, for it's in your name that we pray, amen. Welcome. My name is Pete Wilson. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And yes, thank you. I'll try not to say y'all uh, too many times. Uh, but I'm so glad that you guys are here. I want to welcome those of you that are Grosseal or Celine or Brighton. Maybe you're watching on demand. Uh, we're just so thankful for this. A beautiful Northridge family, and uh, I feel like I'm a part of that family, even though I live a long way away. Um, I think that, I think this is my fifth, it could be my sixth summer that I've been with you guys, and I just love, love being here. Um, thank you. Um, we've got a lot of family in this area. I got to have dinner with my grandparents uh, the night before last, and uh, so that was awesome, and uh, just love watching how God's working in this church, and Pastor Brad's been a, a friend and a pastor to me for some time, and uh, it's always fun to just be here and to catch up with you guys. You're in a series called Unforgettable, and uh, I love this series. It's always a lot of fun, and I always think about this idea of road trips, and road trips are a lot of fun for me. Um, they're also, you know, can be difficult. Uh, I've got three kids, and uh, one of them was able to come up with me, and so we left on Friday and drove up from Nashville, and uh, we, were, we were just leaving Nashville. We've probably been in the car 15 minutes, and uh, my youngest son, who's with me, uh, asked a question. It's a question that uh, almost all kids ask when they're on a road trip, and the question is, are we there yet? Um, I'm like, no, son, we're not there yet. We have about nine more hours to go. And so about 30 minutes later, you know, we're now outside of the Nashville area. I hear from the backseat, Dad, are we there yet? Like, no, son, we're not there yet. And so about four hours later, we're coming into the state of Ohio, which I really wasn't that excited about anyway. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I can remember like five years ago, Brad telling me like, if you'll just tell some jokes about Ohio, they'll love it. And it's, you know, I spend my entire year just researching Ohio jokes for the next summer, right? So, um, you know, and he's asking again. And so by the like sixth time that my son's asking, are we there yet? I'm about to pull my hair out, you know? And that's the point where, you know, as a parent, you begin to understand why some species of animals eat their young, right? It's like, okay, it's like I get it. But, but, but nobody likes waiting. And so a lot of us get to these places in life where we ask that question of God. 
It's like, God, are, are we there yet? Right? Are we there yet? And, and, and it's not so much a question, right? Because it's not even really a question for our kids. They're not really asking, are we there yet? They know that we're not there yet because the car is still traveling down the interstate. They're making a statement. And the statement usually is, I'm bored. Or the statement is, I'm not where I really want to be. And that's what we're doing, right? When we say to God, God, are, are we there yet? You know you're not where you want to be, but you're frustrated. And that's part of life. You know, life can be messy. Um, this past year in my own life, man, I wish I could just sit down and have a cup of coffee with every one of you and tell you about the journey I've been on since I was here a year ago. It's a journey that I really never expected in my life. And it's been messy. And life can be messy. Um, you know, and sometimes the, the mess in our lives is, is because we just live in a broken world. You know, sometimes mess happens, right? There's a, another form of that on a bumper sticker. Um, but uh, it, it happens, right? And, and, and then there's the other side of it that often there's mess in our life as a direct result of some of the decisions we've made. And we can't deny that. And probably most often when you think about the messes in life, they're probably a combination of, of both. Some of it's our decisions, some of it's just living in a broken world, some of it has explanations, and some of it doesn't. But it almost always involves some kind of season of waiting. And we don't like to wait. We just don't. You know, we, we, we live in a, in, in a culture where it's all about fast this and instant that, right? Uh, uh, essentially, what our culture has created is a group of quickaholics, right? And we want what we want when we want it. We become seduced by words like quick, easy, instant, right? It's just kind of a part of our culture. We don't like standing in line, right? I'm, I'm one of those guys that when I'm checking out of the grocery store, like I assess all the lines, I count how many people are in each one, look how many groceries they have, and then pick a line that I think is gonna be the quickest line. And it never is. It's always the slowest line every time, right? But I want to get out as fast as I can. Even when I'm in, a, I'm not even in a rush. I don't even have anywhere to go, but I, I want it to be quick. I want it to be instant. I want it to be fast. I love uh, inventions. Like I have an app on my phone called Waze, right? And Waze somehow calculates like the fastest route and it takes traffic in. And, and I love it. I'm a, I'm a day, I used it this morning, just coming from the hotel to, to here, right? There's not even hardly any traffic out there, but it's like, I want to make sure that I, I get there in the quickest way, right? Um, I, I have this thing on my TV called TiVo. I don't know if you guys have that or you probably have a version of it, but it allows you to skip through, you know, the parts of the TV that show that you don't want to watch. Generally, it's the commercials, right? So the commercials come on and you're just like, boop. And it just skips right through it. It's beautiful, right? Scary part of a movie. It's like, doop, doop, right? And just skip right through it. Or Ohio State comes on and you, know, you don't want to, bloop, bloop, bloop. So like, I got them for days. I'm telling you, I spent a year researching them. Uh, so again, it's all about what? It's about instant. It's about fast. And so then there's this interesting dynamic that happens for those of us that are believers, and I'm not gonna make the assumption that everyone listening is a Christian, you believe in Jesus, but for those of you that do, there's an interesting dynamic that happens in our spiritual journey when we go into these seasons where things aren't happening in the way we want them to happen or in the timing that we want to happen in. And it's an interesting dynamic I see in my own life as a 
over the years as a pastor, I've seen this in people who have been Christians for 50 years and people who have been Christians for five minutes. The interesting dynamic that takes place is there's, there's an assumption that's made. And when someone gets thrown into a waiting room of life, the assumption is almost always that God's not with me. God must not be with me, right? Have you ever doubted, and you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever doubted God's love? Have you, have you ever been in a season where you just really doubt God's power? Because if God had power, why isn't there change? Why isn't something happening in your life? Have you ever wondered if, if God really honestly has a clue what's going on in your life? And if you're honest, you'd probably admit, sure, yeah, you've been there. You've been at that place where you've just prayed, God, are, are you kidding me? God, am I ever going to meet that special person? God, am, am I ever going to get that job that, that, that brings me some kind of purpose and satisfaction in life? God, am I ever going to be healed of this chronic pain? Right, God, am, am I ever going to get to a place where this marriage turns around? God, are we ever going to get to a place where we can have children? Right? And, and you're in this season where there's something that you long for desperately. And you just don't understand why it's not happening. Now, the interesting thing for me is I have never met anyone who has an authentically intimate relationship with God who also does not have a story about having to wait on God. And the Bible's full of these stories. I made a list this week. That it's just a handful. I'm sure there's more. But Abraham and Sarah, they wait expectantly to have a child. Jacob waits for Rachel to be his wife. Joseph waits longingly in prison. John the Baptist waits longingly in prison. Noah waits 150 years for the floodwaters to recede. The Israelites are gonna wait 40 years as they wander around in the promised land. The disciples are gonna wait for Jesus to calm the storm. The disciples wait for Jesus after the crucifixion. Story after story, there's these seasons of waiting. And what you begin to see, not only in the Bible, but also in our own lives, is that there is a undeniable relationship between waiting and transformation. Let me say it again because this is kind of the whole crux of this message. There is an undeniable relationship between waiting and transformation. Those two th things, like they just almost always go together. So there's this story in the Bible that I wanna kind of use to kind of show you how this principle works. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. And it's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Actually, it's 1 Kings 17 and 18. And there's two parts to this story. If you grew up in church, you grew up in Sunday school, the second part of this story, which is where I'm going to start, you're actually very familiar with this part of the story. And, and I remember growing up in church, I heard this story all the time in Sunday school because it, it talks about the power of God. And it's a great story. The other part of the story, though, I would bet a lot of you have never heard that. And, and you'll understand why in a minute when we read through it. But 1 Kings chapter 18, let me give you a quick background, all right? There, there's a king who's the king over the nation of Israel, and his name is King Ahab. And King Ahab is, he's just a bad dude, all right? He has bad news. Um, he has kind of led the people away from worshiping the one true God, and he worships a God by the name of Baal. And um, so God raises up a guy by the name of Elijah, Elijah's the prophet of God. He kind of speaks on God's behalf. And God says to Elijah, I want you to go 
to King Ahab and the nation of Israel, and I want you to announce to them that there's going to be um, um, a drought. There's going to be a severe drought, and it will not rain until you say that it's going to rain. And so Elijah gets up his courage. He goes to King Ahab. He says, hey, uh, there's going to be a drought. There's going to be no rain for three years. Nobody believes him. They think he's just some crazy old dude, and they're like, you know, whatever, and they dismiss him. Well, three years goes by, no rain, all right? So they're now in the midst of a severe drought. You know, they're thirsty, they're hungry, they're desperate. So Elijah comes back and he's like, hey, you guys remember me? The crazy old dude who told you it wasn't gonna rain? He's like, you guys ready to talk? And they're like, yeah, let's talk. And so Elijah says uh, to King Ahab, King Ahab, what I want you to do is I want you to uh, gather all the people Gather all the people, the whole nation together and go on top of Mount Carmel and we're going to have a little contest. And he said, what I want you to do is I want, we're going to take two different uh, bulls and uh, you take one bull and I'll take the other bull and I want you to build your own altar and you can cut the bull up and place it on the altar and then I'm going to cut my bull up and put him on the altar and we're going to have a little contest. Now, before I kind of give you the details of this contest, I just want to remind those of you who might not be familiar with the Bible that this story is going to sound really weird to you, okay? And that's okay, because those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we think it's weird as well, okay? So we're all in the same place. It's just one of these weird stories. I like it because it reminds me it's got to be true, because who would make up this kind of stuff, right? And so there's the two cows, and so Elijah says, Ahab, you and the prophets of Baal, there's 450 prophets of Baal, by the way, you guys go first. So they do, and they start to pray, and they go through all these different religious ceremonies, and they're cutting themselves and doing some really weird stuff, and they're asking Baal to um, respond with fire and ignite the sacrifice. And they do this, and it goes on and on and on, nothing happens. So Elijah's like, okay, my turn, you know, tag me in, Uh, I'm I'm up. And uh, he walks up, and he fills four jars full of water, and he douses his bull and his altar. And he doesn't do it just once, he does it three times, all right? So now it's drenched, it's soaked, there's water all over it. Everybody's like, what are you doing? Like, you're about to ask God to light it on fire. Why would you pour all this water all over it? He steps up, he prays, he asks God to respond. God sends fire down from heaven and consumes the entire altar, 1 Kings 18 tells us. Now, that's a big moment, okay? Like, if you're a pastor or a prophet and like you pray and ask God to respond with fire and fire comes down out of heaven, That's really cool. I mean, that's like, I would love to go out in the parking lot and just try it. Like, you know, I just, it'd be like, you know, like fire, come down and consume the pond out here. Like, it'd just be like amazing. And everybody, so this is a big day for Elijah. This is a big day. Like, like everybody celebrates him and they carry him around on his shoulders and he gets a book deal and a TV show and Oprah interviews him and like, it's a highlight in ministry. Like every prophet like, looks forward to the day that they're like, I want some fire to come down from the sky and, whoosh, and it happens. Like it's a huge deal. And that story gets told over and over and we tell it to our kids and it's a testament to how powerful our God is. And it's an awesome story, but it's only part of the story. That's 1 Kings 18, that's the second part. The first part is the part that always gets ignored. And I think it's equally as important. And I want to kind of walk you through that story because this story 
uh, means a lot to me these days, all right? And it's found in 1 Kings 17. So let's kind of rewind to the beginning. And I'm just going to read this to you, okay? 1 Kings 17 starts in verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbite and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So the message is simple. He just says, Elijah, I want you to go to this location. I want you to go by the brook and I want you to camp out there. The brook will be kind of your source of life, your source of water. And I'm going to direct the ravens to bring you food. All right. I told you the story was kind of, kind of weird, right? But, uh, it's like this little Dr. Doolittle type moment, right, where he's friends with the animals and, you know, talking to them and they're bringing them food and all that stuff. And so verse 5, it says, so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So it seems like life is great. And, and this is true. I, I, I believe this every time that we say yes to God in any area of our life, we get to experience things that other people don't. It's just part of the cool thing of being on a journey with God. You say yes to Him and you experience amazing things. So things seem good. And I think we could draw the conclusion by looking at the story, we could agree that since Elijah did exactly what God told him to do, that he is, this is a kind of a religious phrase that we use in our culture, we could say since he's been obedient to God, he did exactly what God told him to do, that he's now living in the center of God's will. And sometimes you'll hear this phrase that the, the center of God's will is the safest place to be. I don't, I don't really agree with that phrase. Um, I think the center of God's will might be the right place, but I don't think it's always the safest place. Um, I think following Jesus is the right thing, but I don't think it's always the safest thing. And let me show you why I don't think it's always the easiest or the safest. There's this one little verse, and this is the verse that nobody really pays attention to, and it often kind of gets skipped over, but there's so much packed into this verse, and this explains a lot of some of the things that some of you are going through right now. It's verse 7, and it says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. That, that's interesting to me. Because I'm thinking, well, the, the brook dried up. Well, that's, that's his source of life. The brook is the brook's his, his source of hope. So you got to imagine if you're Elijah, you're like, God, what are you doing? Because God, you, you told me to come to this brook. And now the brook is drying up. So what are you doing? Like, I'm, I, I, I'm going to die out here. So you step back from the story and you're like, wait. How could God do that? How could God tell somebody to go to a certain place? How could God tell somebody to do a certain thing and then they do it or they go there and it's like the bottom falls out? And so if I'm Elijah, I'm like, God, you, you told me to come here. What have you done? And like every single day, you know how a brook dries up, right? It's not like all of a sudden it just comes dry, every day he's watching this brook dissipate little by little. 
Every day he's sitting there and the brook is getting drier and drier and every day he's becoming more and more frustrated. Every day he's becoming more desperate. Any desperate people here today? You, you don't have to raise your hand, but is any, anybody desperate here today? Anybody thinking, you know what, God? I thought this was gonna be different, right? God, I thought you told me to marry her. I thought you told me to move to the Detroit area. I thought you told me to take that job. I thought you told me to take that risk. I thought you told me to turn down that job. I thought you told me, right, I I was supposed to invest in that. I thought you told me that I should become a generous person. I thought you told me that I should turn that guy down on that date. God, I thought you told me I should do this. I thought this was the right thing to do, and I did it, and now look. And at first glance, right now in your life, when you look at the circumstances of your life, it seems like your brook is drying up. At first glance, it feels like your hope is just dissipating. It feels like you're at a dead end right now. You feel like God made you some promises and you banked on those promises. And quite frankly, you've been told your whole life that you could bank on these promises. Your whole life, people have told you that there are promises like God is for you and not against you. Your whole life, you've been told that um, God has a plan and he has a purpose. Your whole life, you've been told that he's always with you. Your whole life, you've been told he would never leave you. He would never forsake you. Your whole life, you've been told that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And those things may be true. But right now, you're standing by a brook that is dry. And your hope is dissipating. And the truth might be that God is with you, but it sure doesn't feel like he's with you. You ever been there? You ever felt that? You ever experienced that? Some of you there right now. There's all kinds of people around you and they keep telling you things like, hey, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's gonna be okay. You ever had someone tell you that God will not give you more than you can handle? Like, I, 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 people tell me that all the time. And I, and I get, like, people get weird around pastors sometimes. And, like, they do. Like, if you're on a plane and you tell somebody you're a pastor, like, they just feel like they have to talk about spiritual stuff. And sometimes they're not even spiritual at all. So they start making up verses that aren't even in the Bible and stuff. And you just, you just want to, like, help them out. And, but, and I'm a pretty non-confrontational person, so I just kind of play along and kind of like, yeah, that's a, that's a great verse, you know. And, um, uh, but I'm thinking, I'm, they've never opened the Bible, never. Like it, uh, and, and this is one of those phrases. That, uh, again, I hear it all the time. People say it to me all the time. God will not give you more than you can handle. It's okay. I'll even sometimes get letters from people who be like, thank you so much. I, you know, I know that you taught me God will not give me more than I I'm like, I never said that. I never one time have I said that. And I've never said that because honestly, it's not in the Bible. Now, what some people think is they take this one verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it says that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Okay, that's the verse. But that verse is talking about temptation. What that verse is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 is that God will never put you in a situation where your only choice is to sin. 
But it does not say that God will not give you more than you can handle. It doesn't say that. It makes for a really great bumper sticker, right? But let me give you a new bumper sticker. God will give you more than you can handle, all right? I promise you that. And so the next time somebody says that to you, I want you in love to just take one step back and then I want you to say, have, have you ever read the Bible? Because like, listen, the whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible is that God will give you more than you can handle, right? Every single story in scripture, God's given somebody more than they can handle. It's the whole point because when you think that you can handle your life, that you can do it on your own, you're gonna go do your own thing. And the reality is that God will allow you into circumstances in this broken world that are far beyond what you can handle. And the point of that is for you to get to this place where you can surrender and you can trust him even in those moments. So guess what? God will lead you to a brook. And if he wants to, he will allow that brook to dry up. He will. Look at verse eight. It says, then the, word, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to him the key word there's then, right? Not before, but then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So then, again, not before, meaning God will often let your brook dry up before he moves. Now, why? That's a great question. It's a question I've asked myself hundreds of times. Why? Why a dry brook? Like, because it's clear that before God even made the brook, long before God sent Elijah to the brook, long before God ever allowed the brook to dry up, God already had a plan that he was gonna provide a widow that was gonna take care of Elijah. He wasn't gonna starve to death. He wasn't gonna die. There was hope, and there was hope there all along. God knew about that hope. So why not skip the dry brook and just take him straight to the widow? Right, maybe not even use the widow, just let the brook continue going. Like, I have all kinds of questions, and I'll be honest, I have just racked my brain, and I've prayed through this, I don't, I don't have a good answer. I don't, I don't know why it happens in, in this sequence. But when you look at some other stories in scripture, when you start interviewing other people who have gone through seasons of waiting and transformation, when I look at my own life, my, my best guess at this is that, you know, when, when the brook dries up, you know what God gets from me? My attention, immediately. See, if, I, if I'm honest with you guys, in my life when the brook is flowing and the ravens are bringing me meat in the morning and meat at night, it is real easy to get fixated on how beautiful the brook is. Right, it's real easy for me to be just be like, I love this brook. I am in love with this brook. I'm in love with this source of life. I'm in love with these ravens who bring me this amazing food in the morning and at night. Life is good, right? It's so easy to get focused on the gift instead of the giver of the gift. It's so easy in life, right, to get fixated on the blessings and not the provider of the blessing. But you let the brook dry up in my life, whew, and you got my attention real quick, real quick. And my brook dried up this year and God got me and he got all of me. And I wish that there was another way for that to happen in life. But the reality is the way that we're wired as human beings, generally speaking, it's in this waiting that the transformation happens. Now see what we have, um, 
the beauty of knowing and seeing is that that's chapter 17 where the brook is dry. What we know is that there's another chapter coming along for Elijah and that's chapter 18. And chapter 18 is an amazing chapter, right? It's the one everybody wants to talk about. It's where Elijah's ministry is gonna take off and fire comes down and he gets to meet Oprah and amazing things start to happen, right? Chapter 18 is an amazing chapter. Chapter 17, not so much. But what God is saying in chapter 17 is Elijah, Elijah, listen. There's some amazing things around the corner for you beyond what you could ever, ever imagine. And I know that this season is gonna be tough, but I need to know that you know that I'm a good God And I'm a God that will take you to the brook. And yes, I will allow that brook to dry up. But Elijah, guess what? I made the brook. I made the brook. And I may allow for it to dry up, but Elijah, I will always provide a way. And so Elijah, I need you to know that. I need you to be focused on me, right? The giver of the blessing and not just the blessing. I need to know that before I take you into this unbelievable season. I need to know that you're prepared. And so when I read through this story, what I'm reminded is that Just because your dream is delayed does not mean that it's denied. Just because your dream is delayed doesn't mean it's denied. Hope, true hope, comes from not only believing in God's power, but also from trusting his timing. And that's hard to do, isn't it, friends? Because we want God's power and we want God's comfort, but most of the time, We don't want his calendar. True hope comes from not only wanting God's promises, but also trusting in his process. And there's always, always, always a purpose to the process. It's always there. And and, and waiting, it's not a waste, right? We have been trained in our culture to believe that waiting is always a waste. It's why we've created so many different forms of technology that uh, promise quicker response, things to happen faster. We've been trained to think that, that waiting is a waste. Waiting is not a waste in God's economy. Sometimes when you're waiting, you're doing the most important thing you could ever do, which is allowing your hope to grow up even though you have not received what it is that you desire. Because the people that we want to become, the men and women that we wanna become, the college students that we wanna become, right, the marriages that we want, right, the kind of single dating lives that we want, that doesn't come when you get what you want. It just doesn't. Becoming that kind of person and developing that kind of character is only developed in these seasons of waiting. So what do you do? What do you do if you're stuck right now and you're in one of these seasons of waitings? Let let, let me just give you two quick things. I only got a couple minutes, so I have to hit these fast. The first one is this. Um, You might wanna jot this down. Uh, Remember his faithfulness. All right, you have to remember his faithfulness. If, if, If you don't find ways in your life to remember God's faithfulness in your past, you'll never trust him with your future, right? And so you kind of have to find some systematic ways. And again, this isn't easy. This is countercultural because we are, uh, we are trained 
To not think about what we have, we're trained to always be focused on what we don't have or what we think that we need. And so that keeps us forward looking at the different things we think we need to be happy. You gotta find a way to break through that and look back and remember that if you look around a little bit, there's all kinds of signs of God's faithfulness. And when you focus on God's faithfulness in your past, it helps you to trust him with your future. The reality is some of you right now are sitting next to someone who is a sign, they are a symbol of God's faithfulness in your life, right? Some of you have some kids or some grandkids that are in a Northridge children's environment right now who represent God's faithfulness in your life. Some of you are gonna leave church today and go get in a car that represents God's faithfulness in your life. You understand if you get in a car today That means you are in the top 6% of wealth in the world. God's been faithful to you. Some of you are gonna go home to an apartment or a house that is a sign of God's faithfulness to you. Some of you will go to work tomorrow to a job that is a sign of God's faithfulness to you. These signs are all over, but you gotta learn to open your eyes to them. And when you learn to see those things, you can trust God. You can trust him with your future. And then the second thing that I would say to you is, You gotta learn to act on belief instead of doubt. And this one is a little more difficult. But the reality is to become the kind of person of faith that can endure these seasons of being stuck in these waiting rooms of life, we have to learn to respond or to act on belief instead of doubt. It's an interesting thing. I used to think that there were just a select small group of people that God used in powerful ways. And that these people were just, they were just wired differently, right? These were your, you know, Pastor Brad Powell. These were your Billy Grahams. These were the kind of people that God just kind of said, you are wired different. You are wired for a life of faith and doing courageous things. And I'm gonna use that select group of people and everybody else is just kind of along for the ride. And I used to think that because in my life, to be honest with you guys, I have a lot of doubts. To this day, I have more questions than I do answers. And so I have all these doubts, and so I used to think, well, I'm just never gonna be that kind of person that God uses for powerful things because I, I, don't, I don't live that kind of you know, unbelievable, courageous faith. Until I got to this place where I started to understand, wait, 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 we're all wired the same, right? We all have the same thing going on inside of us, and that is this, inside of every human being, there's belief, and there's also unbelief, right? There's, there's belief and, and there's doubt. The difference is that some people learn to choose in their life to act on the belief part. And I think that's all faith is. Faith is I have belief and I have unbelief, but I'm gonna choose to act on the belief, even in the midst of the questions, even in the midst of the doubts, even though I'm wondering whether God really knows or cares or whether he's here in this moment, I'm gonna choose to act on the belief that he is here, that he is with me, that he does have a plan. And whenever I act to choose on that belief, man, amazing things happen. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even next week, but over the course of time, I've seen it time and time again. I have never, ever one time regretted choosing belief. And so maybe today you find yourself in a situation where you need to choose belief. And maybe for some of you today, you're at a regional campus or you're watching on demand and maybe choosing belief for you is as simple as saying, I wanna choose to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been kind of on that 
that, that bubble, right? You've been kind of riding the fence and, and, and you've been like, I wanna believe in Jesus, but I also have these questions and I have these doubts. And, and again, becoming a Christian is not saying I don't have any doubts or I don't have any questions. Becoming a Christian is the same thing. You have belief and you have unbelief. Choose belief. Choose to believe in Jesus. Choose to believe that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And so if you're here today, you're at one of our campuses, maybe you're watching online and you've never made that decision to trust in Jesus, I would encourage you, I'm about to say a prayer. And why don't you just sitting where you're sitting, just in your heart, make this your own prayer. If you're here and you're already a believer, maybe you take these next couple seconds out just to pray for somebody who's not. But could we bow our heads together just as a, as a community of people? Let's just pray together. And if you're here and you wanna choose to believe in Jesus for the first time, just sitting where you're sitting, just, just in your heart, make this your prayer. Maybe it's something like this. Just pray, God, I believe that you've given us eternal life. God, I know that I, I don't deserve this on my own. I know that I've sinned against you. I know that I've failed you. I know that I've lived contrary to your truth. But I also believe that that's why you came. You lived the life that I couldn't live. You died the death that I couldn't die. And you rose again, giving me new life. And so I'm choosing, even in the midst of my doubts, even in the midst of my questions, I'm choosing to believe in you, Jesus. For it's in your holy name that I pray, amen. Well, you just prayed that prayer. I, I would love to take a second just to encourage you. Um, in fact, everybody today, if you're at a physical campus, you got uh, one of these connect cards. And if you would take just a second, if you prayed that prayer with us, if you take just a second, to fill out this card. There's a place at the bottom that uh, you can actually kind of check mark that says, today I pray to receive Jesus in my life for the first time. If you just check that uh, on your way out of one of uh, our locations, you can just drop that in the box. If you can't find the box, find a greeter. They'll help you find a box, but you can check that. That would be great. If you're watching online, there's a button that you can click that says, what's next? And if you just click that button, um, that'll be kind of your next step, which would be awesome. Uh, I'd also like to just say this in closing. Um, for those of you, specifically, who are stuck in a season of waiting right now, you just find yourself in that place where life isn't working out the way you thought it was gonna work out. Um, this is such a loving church, right? And, and you've been reminded today that you're not alone, that God is with you. But we'd also like to say to you, there's a community of people, this church, that would love to walk beside you. And so if you're at one of the physical campuses today, immediately following the service. There's a group of people who would love to pray with you. Maybe you prayed that prayer today for the first time. They love to pray with you as well, all right? And so right after the service, you can just come down front and that group of people would love to just talk with you and pray with you and encourage you and remind you that you are not alone. Northridge, I love you guys. I hope you have a great weekend. Grace and peace.